Well, good morning. Um, yeah, this is weird. Uh, but as we were praying before our service this morning, um, just reminded of how God loves to use weird, uncomfortable, different things to get our attention and to still use them way beyond what we could imagine or, or expect. Um, so this morning we are in Isaiah. Uh, we're kind of at this halfway point of Isaiah, and we've just come out of um, a lot of prophecy, right? We, we know in the book of Isaiah that there are all different types of literature. Um, and here we come to a point where there's narrative, there's a story uh, that's unfolding, and the story kind of centers around uh, the, the people of Assyria, and then also King Hezekiah, Isaiah, and the people of God. Um, as I was thinking about uh, and sitting in these chapters, chapters uh, of Isaiah 36 through 39, I was thinking about the word dependence. And I'm at a point in my life right now where it has become very clear to me how dependent I am in a specific way. Uh, a lot of you know that um, my wife and I are expecting our first and while this is a very exciting thing, a thing that's built with lots of anticipation, I have become really aware of how in this situation I'm really weak and I'm really fragile. And I've seen how I, I really am dependent on a lot of other things other than myself um, to walk through this process of, of having this little boy come into the world. For one, dependent on all the stuff <laughs> that we have to get in order for him to have the safest, like best environment possible. I want the stroller to be the best. I want the car seat to be the best. And I remember looking at it in the car being like, this thing's supposed to support his little head. Like, how is that going to work? And like, just, oh, I hope this car seat is the right one and going to take care of our son. I'll probably be driving slower than I ever have in my life in the next uh, year or so. But dependent on the stuff, I've been so dependent. I should probably be dependent on my wife in a lot of things, but so dependent on her knowing more than me as far as like what it looks like to for one, have a child, uh, but two, just to raise him and to provide a nurturing environment for him. She, her, her degree is in human development. Mine is no degree. So just so dependent on her knowledge, what she's learned, and for her to just have these maternal instincts like right from the get-go. And then also like, man, this morning, even before our services, I was praying. I just had to confess to God how much fear I have going into labor and delivery. Uh, and a lot of that fear and that feeling weak comes from me not being able to do anything. Um, and that I'm really dependent on the doctors and the nurses and, again, on my wife. Um, and ultimately on the Lord, right, to hold all things together in that scenario. And, and I've, this dependence has become so clear because I feel really weak and fragile. And also I know that my son, as he comes into the world, he's going to be very weak and fragile, and so I'm, I'm hoping and I'm, I'm relying on these things to take care of him. I think we as people often recognize uh, we can relate with feeling weak and fragile, right? We are susceptible to a sickness. Uh, we are susceptible to fear and doubt, anxiety, depression, hurt, dissension, broken relationships, our insecurities, there's times where we're really confused on why things are happening. And in that, the question I ask you this morning and the question I really believe the, the text asks, asks us this morning is in that, in your fear, in your fragility, 
in your weakness, who are you depending on? I want to pray for us and from our time previously, almost a year ago, where we were sheltered in place and online church was kind of what we uh, did on a regular basis. I just want to remind us of two things. I hope this morning just reminds us of how good and how altogether different it is when God's people gather together in person. And I hope that this service this morning would just build our anticipation for when we get to be back together in person. And, and hopefully that's just this next Sunday. The other thing that, that I'd want to remind us of is this. Man, what a blessing that we still can communicate and still gather around God's word together, even though it may be distant, where there's many peoples all over the world that wish they had something like this to gather around God's word with other believers. So, uh, from my time being at home watching sermons, I know some of you right now are Bibles open to Isaiah 36, ready, watching. Some of you may be weeding and listening to it or on a walk with your spouse or friend or kids as you're listening, uh, maybe even puzzling or something like that, uh, multitasking as you're doing this. And that's totally fine, no shame. I think I've done all the things, uh, maybe not the weeding, um, but I think all those things, I, I experienced that as well. And what I want to encourage just as I pray, is that we would just gear our hearts to hear from the Lord. No matter where we may be at, we wouldn't be susceptible to distractions because we're in our home, but that we would just come before the Lord and say, God, would you instruct me? Would you teach me? And would you help me to know you and give me the courage and the strength and the ability to, by your spirit to follow you? Let's pray. Lord God, this is a lot of text. This is... Um, this is deep, Lord, and there's so many different directions we could go in, in, in these stories, God. But would you help us to center in and focus on that question of who are we depending on? Lord, would you increase our dependence on you in all circumstances, in all situations, in the times where fear is at the door, and also in the times when we feel like everything's okay and actually going well? Would you help us to see you and recognize our weakness to follow you in those moments as well, that we are ever dependent on you. In your name, amen. So like I said, at this point where we're jumping into the story, Hezekiah is the king of Judah. And Assyria, the nation that God has told his people, I think this took place back in Isaiah 8, God has said, hey, you have continued to rebel against me. You have continued to turn from my ways. And so I I'm going to judge you. I'm going to discipline you for this. And I'm going to use the nation of Assyria as my instrument. And here is Assyria at the gates of Jerusalem. They've taken out the fortified cities. They are closing in on the capital, the hub of God's people. Um, and so in this, what the tactic of the king of Assyria is, is he sends out his Rabshakeh, like Dan alluded to. The Rabshakeh reminds me of, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings series in Return of the King, the mouth of Sauron, right? And the Rabshakeh's goal is to intimidate is to boast, is to cause fear and confusion, to shout at God's people, to shout at its king and deliver messages that bring about doubt and confusion before a sword is ever drawn or before an arrow is ever fired, to do damage through words, through manipulation, through the mental game. It actually, uh, this scene made me think of, for all of you that watch rap battles um, here at our church, but it made me think of a rap battle 
where when one person has the mic, their goal is to boast and to build themselves up to be this awesome, incredible person that no one could ever come against. And the other part of a rap battle is to try to take away any ammo that the other person could possibly use against you or use to build themselves up further. So there's lots of accusations. There's lots of cutting people down, roasting people to try to make them feel small and feel like, man, they took everything from me. How could I respond to what they've just said? And I feel like that's what the Rabshakeh's goal is here. He wants to try to take away any ammo that God's people think they have to have a boast that, no, we will not bow to you. We will not be defeated by you. So let's see this go down as the Rabshakeh addresses God's people in Isaiah 36, starting at verse 4. In the NIV, it calls him the field commander. So verse 4, the field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say that you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now. You are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? The Reb Shekha actually asks our key question this morning, on whom are you depending and then he goes on to try to eliminate their answers, to take away their ammo of how they could answer back. You're depending on Egypt? Egypt only ever hurts anyone that depends on them. And let's remember, God had warned his people to not depend on Egypt. So the Reb Shekha's like, you can't depend on Egypt. That's just trouble. That's going to bring you more harm than good. And if you say, no, we're not really depending on Egypt. We're actually depending on God. Well, guess what? Didn't Hezekiah just tear down all these altars, all these high places to this God that you serve? How do you think your God feels about that? And what's interesting here is the tactics of the Rabshakeh because he's, he's using accusations, he's using fear, but he's also, and he's lying in there, but he's sprinkling truth in the mix, mix of it. That, yes, Hezekiah had totally torn down altars in high places, but he had torn them down for the, the false gods that the people of, um, people of God had been following, these idols that had been set up. And Hezekiah had been a good king who was devoted to the Lord, to Yahweh, and had torn down these things so that there was true worship in Judah. But the Reb Shekah takes some of what he's heard has gone on and says, yeah, he's torn down these altars. Those altars, those high places were to the Lord. How do you think he feels? Right? We, we see the enemy for who he is, an enemy that, that likes to boast, likes to puff himself up, but also an enemy that likes to lie, but sprinkle truth in the mix to make it confusing for God's people of, man, what if he's right? What if we've blown it? What if, what if God isn't on our side? He goes on further in, in verse 8. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them, 
How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. The Reb Sheka says, even if we gave you 2,000 chariots, just lent those to you to battle us with, you couldn't even fill them. Right? We just see, like, that would be the moment where everyone's like, oh, like, total burn, got you. You can't even fill these chariots. And he keeps coming at the people of Israel, but then he does something that would just pierce them to the heart. He says, and this Lord that you follow, this God that you serve and, and that you trust, he's actually the one that told us to come here to wipe you out. Now, we as readers know that God has said that Assyria is going to be his instrument to bring about judgment upon his people for their sin and their rebellion against him. But it is unclear here that God actually has spoken to Assyria and said, yeah, Assyria, Reb Shekha, king of Assyria, I'm moving you out against my people. I think there's three options here. For one, that could be true. God could have sent a message to Assyria directly and said, I'm moving you against my people. But as we keep reading further, we'll see the view of the Lord is not one um, that Assyria holds where they're actually going to follow him or listen to him. They continue to actually demean God. And so there's two other options too. He could just straight up be lying and just made this up and it just so happens to coincide with what God's doing. Um, or... They could have heard rumors of, of this judgment that's going to come. And so now he's taking that truth, sprinkling it into his accusations, his boasts, and his lies to try to bring about fear and doubt in God's people. I, I personally, because of where the, the rest of the text goes, I think that it's, it's one of those two options, either lying or have heard those rumors and now um, bringing it about. But there, there's a chance that the Lord directly said to them, hey, I am going to use you to bring about judgment on my people. Can you imagine for Israel what that would be like hearing that? That this destruction that's coming about as we're here at your gates, your God actually sent us here to do this. Uh, Judah's leaders, after they hear this, they, um, they kind of come to the Reb Shekha and say, hey, do you mind actually speaking in a language other than Hebrew so that the people on the wall here, the people in the city, they don't hear what you're saying? Like, we can have this conversation, like, between, between like, the five of us, but, but could you use a different language? They're, they're afraid that this is going to cause confusion, this is going to cause doubt, this is going to cause fear, that they could have an upheaval or an uprising on their hands because of the, the lies and the accusations that this Rabshakeh is speaking. But as they ask the Rabshakeh to do this, it actually like encourages him all the more to continue spewing this, um, spewing these insults and demeaning God's people. But he makes a fatal mistake when he actually brings God's character into question as well. Isaiah 36, starting at verse 15. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. 
Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? The Reb Shekah says, don't depend on your king. Don't depend on your God. They can't be trusted. Instead, trust in us. Trust in Assyria. Come out to us. We'll be your shelter. We'll be your refuge. We'll take care of you. We'll give you what you truly need. And a lot of these promises uh, that the Reb Shekah makes here from the king of Assyria sound a lot like the promises God has given his people too. Even things like each will have their own vine and fig tree. We see that take place in 1 Kings and, and in Micah as well, something that the Lord says. But it also reminded me of the, the promises of God that when God says to his people, I'm going to bring you into a land that is your own, that is flowing with milk and honey. The, Lord, the world loves to take God's promises, God's good gifts, repackage them and sell them as their own like they're on the black market. Like I was thinking about this. I, have, I don't think I've spent any time on the black market, but I know of it. And I think I've witnessed some things on the black market. Other people here, if you're convicted in this next section, that's on you. Um, but on the black market, right? Like the first thing I thought of is like, you, you want to see this movie. And this movie is one there. They're saying it hasn't even come out to theaters yet, but you can watch it now in your home. It's going to be awesome, just like you'd see it in theaters. And you're stoked, and you spend your money to get this DVD or this movie or get it downloaded onto your device. And then you watch it, and it's the movie, but it's altered. It's distorted. There's like the screen is super small for the, the capture of, of, of the, you're supposed to get this full screen or widescreen, but it's, it's small, it's tiny, or there's this weird green film or, over the top, or it's in a different language that you don't understand, and there's not even subtitles or whatever it might be. It's, it's the movie, but it's not the movie at all in the way that you expected it to be. And after you watch it, you're like, yeah, I saw the movie, but it actually just, left me feeling wanting. Like, I, I don't know if I even enjoyed that or if that was actually worth it. And that's what the world does. It takes the good gifts of God, his promises, the good things that he has said, man, this, this is for your benefit. This is for your good, but, but receive them from me. The world repackages it, distorts it, and the goal always with sin, when we, when we choose what the world offers instead of what God offers, is sin's goal always is to make us a slave to it. And that's the goal of the king of Assyria here. He wants to lure the people out, say, you can trust me, not your God. But he wants to make them a slave. He wants to make them bow down to his gods, bow down to him instead of Yahweh. But like I said, the Reb Shekah and the king of Assyria make a fatal mistake when ultimately they compare Yahweh, they compare the God of Judah, the God of Israel, to the gods of the other nations. 
They compare and contrast and say, hey, no other nation, their God hasn't been able to save them from us. How do you think your God can deliver you? And they call God's ability to save into question, which is a big no-no, because God loves to save his people, especially when the odds are stacked against them, when they are at their lowest moment, when there is fear, when there is doubt, when people feel most weak, that is where the Lord loves to step in and deliver and offer a way out. Judah's leaders are afraid, so much so that they tear their clothes collectively. Hezekiah included this picture of total dismay, of sorrow, of hopelessness even, and they, they call to Isaiah the prophet. Hezekiah sends a message to Isaiah and says, um, maybe the Lord will have heard the blasphemy that has been spoken against him, and he will respond. After Isaiah res, uh, receives this message, he responds to both the king of Assyria, the Assyrians, and to Hezekiah and God's people with this message from the Lord in chapter 37, starting at verse 6. Isaiah said to them, tell your master to the Assyrians, this is what the Lord says, or sorry, not to the Assyrians, to God's people, to Hezekiah. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria has, have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. God says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm still your God, and I'm in control so much so that the king of Assyria is going to hear a report. He's going to hear this rumor that the king of Egypt is bringing his armies against him. And that little rumor, that report, is actually going to be what sends the king of Assyria back to his own land. And there, I will deal with him. And we see this take place in verse 9. This is exactly how it goes down. That God doesn't need some big display of his power and might to send the king of Assyria packing but ultimately, all it does is a little report, and God's hand is shoving the king of Assyria right to where he wants him. God has everything at his disposal, disposal to use how he wants to use it. But the king of Assyria doesn't want his returning to his own country to bring uh, confidence to God's people. It, it seems like maybe his armies are still camped there, or at least nearby. So he doesn't want them to think this is a sign of retreat, that we are defeated. No, actually, you should be just as afraid. I haven't forgot about you, Judah. I'm still coming to get you and your God and your king can't save you. He actually writes a letter that then is delivered to Hezekiah and Judah's leaders with, with uh, reiterating the same things that the Rebshekah has said to continue to instill fear and confusion into God's people. And Hezekiah receives this letter, and how the text reads is like Hezekiah receives it, reads it, and then he runs to the temple of the Lord. And it says in, in, in Isaiah 37 that Hezekiah spreads out this message, this letter of fear, this letter of accusations, this letter of confusion before the Lord and cries out to God for help. I wonder if our response 
when we're afraid, when we're in doubt, when we're discouraged, is first and foremost to run to God before anything else. Several years ago, um, I was going through a really tumultuous situation uh, relation, relationally. And, um, and I remember I, I was just beside myself, uh, just devastated because of how hard this situation was. And I called my good friend Greg. And I start telling Greg through tears everything that's going on and how broken I felt, how weak I felt, and how alone I felt in this. And Greg did a great job listening. And uh, at the end, he said, Matt, thank you for telling me this. But ultimately, have you brought this to God? Have you talked to God about this yet? And the answer was no. And, and part of the answer for, for why it was no that I hadn't gone to the Lord is I, I was ultimately afraid to trust him with this. I was afraid that if I brought it before God, that that meant God, I was, I was asking God to work through this and maybe God wasn't going to work in the way I wanted him to. That what was safer was just to communicate my pain to a friend and just try to leave it there instead of running to our Father and saying, God, help me. However you choose to bring this about, help me. It is you and you alone that I need. When you're afraid, when you feel helpless, when you are struggling with doubt, is God the one that you run to? Is he the one that you're depending on in those moments? Do you stop to be with the Lord? Or is it easier to just try and power through or to pretend like it didn't happen or to, to try to numb what you're experiencing or feeling through alcohol or through binge-watching some show? to just disconnect your mind from what's going on? What if we ran to the Lord first? Isaiah 37, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Hezekiah prays and says, God, I know you are different. You are not like these other gods that these peoples made themselves. You are the true and living God. And what convicted me about this passage as I sat in it this last week is, man, when I run to the Lord with my requests and my prayers, do I ask God to simply just fix or change my circumstances? Do I make those prayers more about me than I do about God? Because we see Hezekiah here going before the Lord and saying, God, you are, God, you are this, and God, you are not like these other gods. And ultimately, above all else, Lord, would you use this circumstance, would you use this moment to bring about your fame, your glory, not just here, but in all the earth? Man, what if our prayers changed 
the focus so that in whatever we may be going through, whatever it is that we're seeking the Lord up on, that the end goal, how we would, the, the, the resounding echo in our prayers would be, and God, would you do whatever would bring you the most glory in my life and to the ends of the earth? And in this moment, that's what we see Hezekiah do. God, I want them to know that you alone are the Lord. The Lord responds through his prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah's prayer. And here is where he addresses Assyria and then Hezekiah as well. In 37, verse 23, the Lord says to Assyria, Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. The Rabshakeh thought in his part of the rap battle that he was going to be passing the mic to God's people, to Hezekiah for their response. But ultimately, he's passing the mic to the Lord. And the Lord responds, and no one can outboast our God. No one is greater. No one is more awesome. No one has more power. And no one is able to show it like our God is able to show it as well. And so God says, you have no idea who you're messing with. And then he goes on to say, you've had this boast, Assyria, that you've conquered these peoples, or you've done this thing, or you've had all these chariots. But guess what? That's only happened because I've allowed it. That's only happened because I've purposed it for my purposes. You actually have no power. You have no control. I alone am sovereign. And then he goes further in, uh, then he goes further, sorry, lost my place for a second. In uh, verse 28, God continues and says this, but I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. I've heard what you've said against me. I've heard what you've said against my people. You brought my ability to save into question. You've brought my power into question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bridle you like a wild horse and make you submit to my will, and I'm going to make you return back to your home, and I will defend my people. This is the mic drop moment for God, where there's no responding to what he has just said and declared he is going to do to Assyria. And in this, we see that God is a God who hears the cries of his people, but he's also just a God who hears. He hears the blasphemy spoken against him. He hears the idle words that we speak against others. He is a God who hears accusations and lies and confusion and it does not please him. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 36. He says, but I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. 
And here we see condemnation, judgment coming for Assyria because of the words that they have spoken against the Lord. But God in this moment where he, he, he takes the mic front and center and he addresses Assyria, he also encourages and shows his mercy upon Hezekiah and the people of Judah. He says that he will defend them so much so that Assyria won't even set foot in Jerusalem. But even more important than that, he, he gives them a promise for the now that actually is going to carry over into the future. Look at verse 32 of chapter 37. The Lord says, For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God will not let his people ever be totally destroyed. We talked about that word remnant uh, when we were in 1 Peter, that God is a God who saves his people, that he is bringing his people through this time ultimately to lead them to the point of the Messiah, that the line of Judah will not be destroyed, that even though they will be disciplined and judgment will still come, they will not be destroyed completely, that God will protect them and save them and ultimately bring about eternal salvation through his Messiah that he has promised. The Lord then sends the angel of the Lord into the camp of Assyrians, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are killed. The Assyrians wake up the next morning, see the carnage that has been brought about without any evidence of a battle taking place, and they pack it in and they run back to their homeland. And God has defended his people. And just like God said, he said, I'm going to bring the king of Assyria back to his own land. And there he will be cut down by the sword. How 37 ends as we see this scene. Like one day, the king of Assyria was in the temple of his god, Nisroch. And there he's either offering sacrifices or praying to this false god or worshiping this false god. And there in the temple before his god, he's cut down by the sword by his own two sons, killed. And the irony here is that Hezekiah runs to the temple of the Lord and God sees his tears. God hears his cries. God responds to him and God saves him. But with the king of Assyria in the temple of his God, his God does not see, his God does not hear, his God does not respond, and his God is not able to save him from his own sons. And judgment is brought about for the king of Assyria. We see that our God is a God who sees, hears, and responds, as the, and is the only one who is able to deliver. As we move into chapter 38, uh, Isaiah as we've seen in the past, is a book that is not laid out chronologi uh, chronologically. Right? It's not in chronological order. 
there's different places where different things are put in, but they're arranged in a way that is very intentional by the author and by the Holy Spirit for us as readers to, to take away specific things. So here in chapters 38 and 39, these chapters actually take place like in the middle, or these stories take place in the middle of 36 and 37. So is, uh, Judah has not been delivered from Assyria yet. But we get another picture of Hezekiah and this opportunity. Will he trust the Lord? And how the, how the writer has arranged this is to show um, a contrast between Hezekiah and his, his father Ahaz, who was the king in Judah before him. And we don't have time to get into all the things that are laid out here, but, but you see these snapshots, you see these moments where, where the author is trying to get us to see this, um, this, this crossroads that Hezekiah comes to again and again. Will he be like his father Ahaz, who we saw did not trust the Lord, turned away from God, and it brought about his ruin? Or will he trust God? Will he depend on his God and not be like his father and obey and follow the Lord. And so here we see Hezekiah again at that same crossroads of will he put his trust, will he depend on the Lord when it's his own health that's on the table. Chapter 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die you will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. We see again that even though how Hezekiah addresses God is different, the first thing Hezekiah does when he hears this news is he runs to the Lord. His natural instinct is to run to God and to go to him with this concern. But this time, he's actually, he's not bringing God's fame into it. He's saying, God, haven't I served you well? Haven't I done the right things? Haven't I had this devotion to you, God? He's kind of asking God to act on behalf of Hezekiah's goodness. Let's see how it plays out. Verse four. Then, in the word, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. Again, God hears and sees. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city as Hezekiah is facing death due to, this, due to this sickness and also facing the destruction of his people from Assyria, it's at this moment that God extends his mercy and compassion on both Hezekiah as king and his health, but also on the nation of Judah. That in this moment, God says, I will deliver you from this sickness and I will also deliver my people from Assyria. God extends this promise to Hezekiah extends this mercy to Hezekiah and his people, not because of Hezekiah's goodness, but because of God's goodness. And we see this over and over again, that there is nothing we can do as people to earn God's favor. 
that it has to be God that is the one who is good and extends his mercy and compassion because otherwise it wouldn't be by grace that we're saved. It is God looking down and seeing his people weak, hearing their cries, seeing their tears, that he is compelled by his own nature to respond and not compelled by me being good enough. So Hezekiah's life is extended by 15 years. God hears his prayer and actually in this moment answers his prayers. And I, as I read this, I couldn't help but to think about people that I know in our church, in our congregation, who have diseases, who have afflictions, who have circumstances that have forever changed their quality and their length of life. And that reading this, you could see, man, that was great for Hezekiah, but why does it feel like God hasn't heard my prayers? Why does it feel like God hasn't seen me in my affliction? Because I'm still in the same spot that I was last week, last month, or for the last 10 years. I am not an expert in fully knowing how to encourage you here because I have not gone through that personally. But what I have seen in the lives of people like Pastor Gary and also my own mom, who has Parkinson's as well, is that we are to remember that God sees and hears us. We are to trust in that. And we're also to remember that God has a purpose for when he answers our prayers in the way that we ask, right? When, when our cry is heard from God and he, it seems to be that he answers it just as we asked him to, but God also has a purpose in not answering our prayers the way we wanted them to be answered. We also need to remember, all of us, whether we have this affliction or not, that this life is not as good as it gets. That God's promises, thankfully, don't just extend to this life, but they extend eternally to be a God that saves us eternally. And that the circumstances that we face in this life are avenues for our dependence on the Lord to increase to trust in him all the more, to recognize that he truly is God with us. And I'd encourage you to pray that God would be glorified through your current situation and circumstance, through the affliction or disease that you have, that God, like Hezekiah prayed in 37, that God would be glorified in all the world through this. Hezekiah, after he's healed, he prays to the Lord, and his prayer is one of acknowledging his pain and acknowledging his suffering, but then acknowledging his thankfulness to God in verse 15. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things men's, men live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. Hezekiah says, Lord, I see that the anguish I have endured 
was to my benefit because I got to see something about you that is truly beautiful. I got to know your love in a way that I hadn't seen or that I needed to be reminded of. And, I, and it seems to be Hezekiah here doesn't just simply address that, God, you saved me physically. And this alludes to how Dan opened our service as well, that he isn't just so focused on his own circumstances changing that he's thanking God for that, but he, he goes deeper than the external to the internal and says, God, you have, you have truly saved me because you are the God that can address and deal with my sin. That even though I'm a sinful man, you have put those sins behind your back. And you have been good to me when I didn't deserve it. That God acted out of God's goodness, not out of Hezekiah's. And we see that ultimately, just like as Jesus addressed the paralyzed man first with son, your sins are forgiven. God knows our true and deepest need to be a people that are washed clean from the ravaging work of sin in our lives. That more than our circumstances need to be fixed or amended, and yes, it would be beautiful if that always took place. What The deep work of the Lord that needs to happen is the work at a soul level, a heart level, that we need to be made right with God. And that's why he sends his Messiah to us. As we come to chapter 39, uh, I couldn't help but wonder, could the people of Judah, as they've heard the rumblings of God sending this Messiah, could they be looking at Hezekiah and going, hey, Hezekiah seems to have God's favor. Hezekiah has, has delivered us from these Assyrians. Hezekiah has cried out to the Lord and the Lord has heard him. Hezekiah has this heart and devotion to God. Do you think, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one that God was going to send? And I think this is why Isaiah is laid out this way and we end with 39. That the answer that scripture gives us is Hezekiah the Messiah is nope. Let's see how this plays out. Verse 1, at that time, Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say, and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. 
we have seen two amazing displays of Hezekiah running to the Lord and depending on him in his fear, in his weakness, in his insecurity, in his doubt, in his confusion. But then here, when things maybe seem to be going okay, when maybe Hezekiah has a little confidence as Babylon has sent him this letter and sent him gifts and and maybe stroked his ego a little bit, we see that Hezekiah doesn't run to the Lord for guidance or wisdom in this scenario. I think from what I've experienced and just hearing from other believers as well, it can be pretty easy to run to God when we're at our lowest and weakest. But as we talked about in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, God wants wholehearted devotion to him. That we are trusting in him and his ways in everything, every day. In the big, gnarly things in our lives and in the simple things of going to the store and interacting with the cashier. As we gather around a table for brunch today, or as we go on a walk and as we talk with our neighbors, that God wants us to be seeking him and depending on him in all circumstances in our life. Because when we don't, we miss out. And ultimately, when we sin and our pride gets in the way, it can lead to devastating realities and ramifications. And here, because of Hezekiah's decision, we see that Isaiah tells him, man, this this nation Babylon that you invited in and showed them everything, now they're going to come back and they're going to be the ones that God judges you with. And let's remember that it is not because of just Hezekiah's one decision here that God is going to allow Babylon to come in and, and destroy or judge his people, to discipline his people but that what Hezekiah does here is a picture of what what God's people has done all along, of not trusting in the Lord, but trusting in themselves, trusting in their things and their wealth, what they can accrue, and looking to the other nations for affirmation or to be more like them. And so this is the moment that God says, you will be judged for what you have done. You will bring about, Babylon will bring about retribution for your sins. It is crazy how far reaching our sin can go. That in that moment, I doubt Hezekiah ever thought that his sin would lead to something so devastating. But the weird part is at the end, he, he almost seems like kind of like, eh, like I, that's too bad, but at least it's not happening in my lifetime. Man, sin is so deceiving to us to think that maybe this just, at least it's not impacting me. We think we can keep sin in this tidy little box sometimes of maybe, maybe this will be bad for me and maybe one other person, but gosh, our sin spreads way further than we could ever imagine. And we need a Messiah, we need a Savior on whom we can truly depend, on one who can save us completely, on one who will actually have wholehearted devotion to the Lord, on one who can actually save us from the true problem that exists in us as people, that we choose our way instead of God's way 100% of the time, if not for God. We need a God, like we saw in this story, who is just, that will deal with evil, 
but also who is merciful and hears and sees the cries of his people. And we see justice and mercy come crashing together in the most unexpected and beautiful way. When the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes to earth, God's only son, and he's crucified. God's just judgment for sin, but in his spotless, sinless son, and extending mercy to all who would believe and trust in him, not because of our goodness, but because of his, and that all who believe might receive life now, but eternally. We see God's mercy on the cross, that it doesn't just take care of my sin and how it affected me, but that Jesus actually absorbs and takes on all the ramifications of our sin too. As far spreading as our sin goes, Jesus knows to the nth degree of how far our sin has corrupted and corroded others and impacted our world, and he bears that on the cross. We see God's mercy that he protects us when we have huge failings, even like Hezekiah here, that it doesn't happen in his lifetime, that God protects us from, from seeing how far our sin actually could have gone. That there are moments in my life where, where I was driving under the influence and I should have gotten a DUI before knowing Jesus, but God stepped in and protected me from that. That there were times that I did things that were so terrible and so awful that I should have been caught and my life would look totally different. But in his mercy, even when I did not trust in him, he steps in and protects me from as bad as my sin could be. That in God's mercy, he also lets us, he also lets us be caught at times and experience discipline from him. The story of Hezekiah should both encourage and challenge us, encourage us to run to God in all circumstances. It should encourage us that even those in Scripture who had a heart for the Lord, they did not follow him perfectly. And that should encourage us because then when I see Hezekiah, I'm like, man, I get that. There are times where I run to God full steam ahead, and there are other times where I take my time or I think I can figure this out on my own. We should be encouraged that Christ has covered us with his righteousness, with his right standing, with his goodness, and that this doesn't have to be a righteousness that we have made on our own. But we should also be challenged. We should be challenged to have this wholehearted devotion to the Lord challenged to have God expose the areas of our lives where we are not dependent on him, but we have been misled to depend on ourselves or to depend on things of the world. And for God to convict us of those things and to turn our eyes to him and cry out and say, Lord, save me from myself. So church, on whom are you depending? Is it the God who hears and sees you in the God who can truly save. Let's pray. Lord God, as we go into a time now where we sing or we reflect, we ultimately, Lord, want to respond to you. 
We want to respond to the truth that is in Isaiah 36 through 39 that points us also ahead to the truth that you have sent your one and only son to save. And we thank you, Jesus, for saving us in the way that you did, that you take a sinner like me and you offer us true life if we would depend, if we would entrust ourselves to you. We thank you that you are the God who saves and delivers and redeems even some of the most broken situations that we could get ourselves into, the ways that sin has ravaged our lives and even the lives of people around us that, God, you are completely able to save. And we want to recognize your saving work here on this earth, but also that you have saved us eternally. Thank you, Lord, for being the God who hears us and sees us. In your name.